you know, I, uh, uh, I did not think that I would be starting to preach at 1015. To be honest with you, Psalm 51 is such a rich psalm, and it was very hard to prepare for it and, and limit it to about 30 minutes. And I wished I had a couple of hours. I, know, I don't know if you'll wish the same thing, but, <laughs> but it's just so, so rich. And I, I hope I, that in cutting it down as short as I did, that I would still ju- do justice to it. Um, well, you know, in the last uh, month or so, my family have had a chance to visit historical places in Virginia. And uh, we visited some old churches, and one of the things that, uh, that was reminded to me by the Lord when we went to these old churches is how the lecterns and the pulpits were elevated. And the reason being, it's not because the speaker is great, the reason why it's elevated, the reason why I'm being elevated up here is because the word is great. And I... I want to be reminded of that because being up here it can be intoxicating, it can be intimidating, and it poses a danger to my own heart that I would be up here with fleshly desires. And the one thing I want myself and all of us to approach Psalm 51 with is a humble heart. So I would like for us to pray to that end before I begin. So please join me in prayer. Father, send a new visitation by your spirit to your people this morning, starting with me, Lord God, that we may approach your word with such uh, humility, with no arrogance at all, that we would fall before you and realize that that is repentance. To repent before you is to be humble before you and to acknowledge your greatness and who we are before you. So by your spirit, accomplish that among your people this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You know, about a year and a half ago, a celebrity who will remain unnamed was charged with grand theft after she was caught by surveillance camera trying out a $2,500 necklace in a jewelry store um, and then leaving the store without paying for it. Now, during her court appearance, She told the judge that she was entering a plea of not guilty because, quote, I honestly feel I did nothing wrong, unquote. In other words, she was entering a plea of not guilty because she wasn't feeling guilty. Now, we all know that in a court of law, what matters is objective guilt, which is the fact of wrongdoing or crime. It doesn't matter whether or not the accused is feeling guilty. Now, to some extent, we all experience and struggle with feelings of guilt. There are even times when we experience false guilt, which is when we feel guilty over an issue, even if we didn't do anything wrong in relation to it. And the prevailing desire in the culture, in the culture we live in nowadays, is just to focus on getting rid of feelings of guilt that we might have. I mean, if you you go to the internet and whatever you use, Bing, uh, Google, find answers to the question, how do I get rid of guilt? You'll find that yahoo.com, ehow.com, even youtube.com has answers on how to get rid of your guilt. One website has an article entitled, How to Stop Feeling Guilty in Four Easy Steps. And yet we'll find 
that many of the step-by-step advice contain a form of denial of the guilt that each of us feels. Now, the 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche was more to the point with what he believed concerning guilt. He said that guilty feelings may exist, but guilt itself does not exist. But neither Nietzsche nor anyone who thinks like him is the final judge on the existence of objective guilt. Who is? God is. And according to Scripture, from an objective standpoint, we are all guilty. There is no one righteous, no, not one, according to Romans 3.10. And if he says that guilt is real and that we are guilty, the solution is not to deny or get rid of our guilty feelings. Quite frankly, the solution to our guilt is forgiveness. And there is a step, an action that brings us from a state of guilt to a state of forgiveness, and that is repentance. Now today we will be looking at, as was mentioned, Psalm 51, which is a psalm of repentance. Now if there's one command that followers of Christ should take very seriously, it is the command to repent. Now, a couple of months ago, when our pastor was leading us through the book of Matthew, he alluded to the fact that early in their ministries, both John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ himself commanded the people to repent. That should tell us something. Now, our pastor also reminded us that while there is true repentance through the Spirit, there is also such a thing as false repentance, and in that In that same sermon, he mentioned the various forms of false repentance and then described what characterizes true repentance. Now, a truth I would like to emphasize um, this morning is that true repentance is brought about by the Spirit of God. Today, as we end our current series from the book of Psalms, we will take a closer look at an example of repentance by someone who was touched by the Spirit of God. So if you would, please turn with me to Psalm 51. I will be reading from ESV. Psalm 51. It's a rather long psalm, but it's very rich. And I hope you'll be blessed by the reading. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. 
open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Now, in the beginning of this psalm, we have this introductory statement that says, A Psalm of David. That's great information because although tradition and scholarship attribute majority of the psalm's authorship to him, he did not write all of them. Now, the introduction of Psalm 51 leaves no doubt that he was the author. But perhaps more important in the phrase is the phrase that follows. Take a look at what it says. It says, When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. And in the NIV, it says this, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Now, we do not have time this morning to read the narrative in Second Samuel chapter 11. It gives us all the sordid details of David's sin. But I would recommend reading the story in light of today's message because in analyzing David's word in Psalm 51, it is extremely helpful to be familiar with the perspective that he brings to his work, the circumstances surrounding its composition, his emotional intensity, and so on. Now, I would point out once again that this psalm is not merely coming from the pen of one who was sorry because he was caught. It's way beyond that. Is one who was brought to true repentance by the Spirit of God. Now, David is one of the most fascinating characters in biblical history. Really fascinating. He was, a, he was a statesman, a poet, a musician. He was a warrior, him, and so on, so forth. He was truly a, what you would call a Renaissance man. But of all the titles and abilities that were attributed to him, perhaps he is best known by a very endearing title, a man after God's own heart. And in that sense, he was the man. He was the man. But even though he seemingly had it all, he is also one of the worst offenders in biblical history. And after Nathan the prophet listed all of David's crimes, in story form, if you remember the story, gave the story of this rich man who took away the lamb of a poor man, etc. If you remember that story, he, he did not hesitate to point at the king, pointed to David, at the king of Israel, and said, you are the man in the story. Can you imagine that? Now put yourself in David's shoes. Imagine, if you can, how it would feel knowing that the world will know your sin for all time, and that you will be thought of as a man wearing a scarlet letter A, maybe even M for murderer, for centuries, even millennia, after you're gone. And that's where we are right now. We're still talking about his sin. If David were not touched by the Spirit of God, what could he have said in response to Nathan? He could have said, or, or he could have 
told God, well, God, what do you expect me to do? I'm a man. I didn't go out just seeking her. She was bathing in full view, and I just happened to see her. Well, indeed, he just happened to see her. And he just happened to see her again and again and again. It just happened. Now, David here fell into a trap. I, I want us to remain humble here because this is a trap that we could all fall into. He just experienced a downward spiral of sin in which he justified his actions, small step by small step, until his heart got hardened from repeated sin. We are all fully capable of doing the same thing. We allow our consciences to be battered until it develops calluses. And David himself, consumed by his lust, he's then able to say things like, well, again, I'm just pretending, I'm just imagining David, I'm not sure if David really said this, but I would imagine, he could have said, you know, um, I've done so much for this kingdom, I deserve a break here. I'm justified in killing Uriah. I mean, those words have a familiar ring because we each have our own version of those justifications. Hey, you know, I deserve a break. I'll do what I want. Hey, I can't help it. I have needs just like everyone else. Hey, I've given so much of myself already. The world owes me. None of us are immune to this hardening of the heart, which can go on and on until we have no conscience left. That is, until the Spirit of God, combined with the Word of God, pierces us. According to Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow. The Word of God needs to slice our hearts, and this process is painful. It's painful. But God does this to the children He loves to heal them and restore them. Now, David's reaction to Nathan shows how the Spirit works to bring out true repentance. What did David say? Instead of all those excuses, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. I did as you said, Nathan. I'm the man. And we can see that the fruit of repentance is there. Even before he wrote Psalm 51. It's already there. And, and with that, let's journey with David's spirit and see how the repentance of a man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit looks like. So let's go through Psalm 51 together. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. It's in our, na- it's in our nature to want justice wherever we see evil at work in this world. Do we, not, do we not want to see justice? But the first thing that David does is not appeal to the justice of God, but to the steadfast love of God and the mercy of God. Have you encountered people who look at photographs of themselves and they say, this picture doesn't do me justice? I think when people say that, they don't know what they're asking for. Because when it comes to photographs, we don't need justice. We need mercy. (laughs) Do you realize that's why we have Photoshop? That's why Glamour Shots is still in business? That's why we have all these filters that we can attach to a camera lens to soften our features? We ask for justice, but what we really want is mercy. 
And if there's anyone who knew the difference between the two, it's King David. And when he makes his plea in this verse, there are no attempts of rationalization or justification of his sin. He pleads out, blot out my transgressions. In another psalm he wrote, in Psalm 130, David says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand if you remembered everything I did wrong? David is saying, blot it out, please, blot it out. And one of the metaphoric ideas used to describe this blotting out of our sin is that that of God forgetting our sins. You hear that? God forgets our sins and remembering them no more. Now, when we say he remembers our sin no more, it doesn't mean God is having a senior moment. It doesn't mean he's having some sort or suffering from a case of cosmic amnesia or something. What it means is he no longer remembers them against us. So that every time he looks at us, or every time he looks at me, he will say, here's, here's what you did back then, Levi, remember? No. That's, God will not bring it up. God cannot look at sin. And so David is saying, if you're going to look at me, God, if you're going to look at me, blot out my transgressions. Because I know you can't look at my sin at the same time. Now, verse 2 continues with another metaphor. David writes, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Hopefully, most of you are blessed enough to remember that moment of your conversion. And if you do, perhaps you remember the feeling of being flooded by the forgiveness of God as if you were being washed clean. That's what David is asking for. For God's Spirit to act as a cleansing agent to his soul. You know, when we wash our clothes, what do we want? We want all traces of dirt and stains to remove, don't we? That's why those old soap show, or old soap show, uh, I mean, old soap ads. There's old soap ads. What do they say? They, 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 those of you, uh, that's why they're called soap operas. The, the old soap companies used to sponsor them a lot. It, tells you, it dates me, right? But they show these clothes shining bright as the sun, supposedly after you use their product. Some like Tide even claim that they can make clothes whiter than white. If, if you can imagine that. And what, that's what happens when God forgives. All traces, all stains are removed. And that's what David is asking for. Verse 3, David writes, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. You know, as believers, we ask for the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin. When He does, we can be certain He will not let us forget it. And and David is expressing that here, everywhere he looks, he's reminded of his sin. Have you ever felt that way? You just want to hide under a rock? Some even say, I just want to die. I can't bear being reminded of my sin anymore. You realize your sin is real and you can't get away from that reality. And this is another trait of true repentance. The repentant person comes to grip with the reality of their sin. The person knows it's there. It's real. 
all of us would like to forget the things that we did wrong. And people will spend money on substances, all kinds of pleasures and distractions to escape. But in the end, conviction from the Spirit is inescapable. My sin is ever before me. But David also understand that the worst part of his inability to escape the knowledge of his sin is not the accompanying shame, but that his sin is ultimately against God. That's what made it bad for David. Because in in verse 4, he writes this, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, when David says that it was only against God that he sinned, is he, is he denying or minimizing the effects of his sin on the people around him? You know, in reality, many were affected by his wicked acts. I mean, consider Uriah and Bathsheba. He not only sinned against them, but against their entire households, siblings, parents on both sides. And as commander-in-chief of Israel's army, he violated every soldier under his command when he murdered Uriah. And as king, he sinned against everyone in the nation under, of Israel because he was supposed to manifest the righteous reign of God. Instead, look at what he did. He did the exact opposite with his despicable actions. And so with the quote, against you and you only, was he minimizing the severity of his guilt? By saying, no, it's just against you. you Everybody else around me is no big deal. Well, not at all. Remember that David is under the influence of the Holy Spirit as he was writing this psalm. He understood. He understood perfectly that sin affected people on a horizontal level. But he also understood that where there is no law, there is no transgression. Because ultimately, sin is not sin unless it's a violation of God's law. He's using a hyperbole. For those of you taking algebra, it's not a hyperbola. It's a hyperbole. Stating that his guilt goes all the way to the highest of courts. He has violated the holiness of God. And that's another manifestation of true repentance. The, the, the recognition that even as our sins effects are far reaching, more far reaching than we can imagine or on a horizontal level, ultimately and primarily it is against God that we have sinned. Now, in the last part of verse 4, David writes this, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Remember earlier, in verse 1, David was appealing not for justice, but for mercy. Because if justice were applied, he would perish. He would die right there and then. His sins warranted death by stoning. And so David shuts his mouth and throws himself at the mercy of the court. He recognizes the futility of any form of protest. He's saying, 
God, if you send me to hell, I deserve it. You have every right to dispense your justice, and whatever you declare or decide, you are true. Whatever you decide, God, what can I say? You're right. Whatever you decide, you're right. You know, it's really blasphemous for any of us to accuse God of being unjust. We think God owes us something, and we say, God, that's just not fair. A broken and contrite heart does not do this, but rather it is filled with a godly sorrow that will acknowledge that God is just in all His ways, whether we like it or not. He's just in all His ways. Now in verse 5, David writes this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know, oftentimes we can classify people in one of two opposing camps. When it comes to sin, there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who do not believe there is such a thing as sin, and those who do. But even among those who believe that there is such a thing as sin, there are those who deny responsibility for their sins. I mean, you've probably heard this before. What kind of a God allows people to be born having a sin nature and then holds them accountable when they do what comes naturally? You've probably heard that before. I wasn't there in the garden. It's not my fault that I sin. Now, why was David saying what he was saying here? Was David saying this? Was David making excuses for his sinful nature? Not at all. What he's doing is he's acknowledging that even at the moment of conception, he was already fallen. He did not become a sinner a few months after he was born. He came to this earth D-O-A, dead on arrival. And he's acknowledging that God was perfectly just when he imputed on us but to us, the sin of Adam. We cannot pass the buck. God is just when He holds us accountable for what our perfect representative did in the garden. We did not have to commit sin to be called a sinner. And you probably hear this also. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Now verse 6 continues. Behold, You delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You've probably heard the popular quote, and uh, again, I date myself if I mention the name Flip Wilson, but he popularized this. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. Well, David is saying the exact opposite here. He's saying, God, I know that what you want from us is truth, not superficial truth, but truth that comes from the core of our being. He's not saying, God, the devil made me do it, so punish him. He's not saying that sin is accidental, nor is he blaming his upbringing, his circumstances, etc. Rather, he acknowledges that his sin reveals that there is something very, very wrong in the core of his being. And David, therefore, is seeking a renewal That is the renewal of his very center, his heart. That's what he's asking from God. 
a renewal of his heart, very heart, not his surroundings. And in the next verse, that's what he asks to do. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, David's reference to the hyssop plant has to do with the ritual cleansing of lepers, which is found in Leviticus chapter 14. And the way it was done, if you go back to Leviticus, a leper who thinks he has been cured of his disease will go to the priest, and the priest actually functions like a doctor. He will examine the leper, and an elaborate rite is performed involving, among other things, the sprinkling of blood with a hyssop plant. And at the end of it, the priest will declare that the person's cleansing is thorough and that there are no more traces of leprosy. So the cleansing with hyssop is a metaphor for total cleansing and renewal. And David is saying, Lord, in your sight, I'm a leper and I need cleansing like the leper. That's why he mentions that hyssop plant. I'm a leper in your sight, Lord, and only you can clean me. Now, conviction from God is not easy to handle. We we can already see that at this point. So much so that David compares it to his bones being broken. In verse 8, he writes, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. The hand of God that came upon David is crushing him. But his broken bones, as it were, are able to rejoice. There is a sweetness that comes with God's conviction. And that is the difference between conviction by the Spirit and the accusations of Satan. Where all he does is call attention to our sins and drive us to despair. The Apostle Peter, after he betrayed Christ, was convicted by the Spirit. And he was restored. Judas, after he betrayed Christ, listened to the accusations of Satan. And it drove him to despair, ultimately killing himself. There's a difference. Now verses 9 and 10, they echo the pleas that David made earlier in the psalm. He writes, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Again, David pleads with God to have the record of his sin erased. And then he goes back to the root of his problem. His heart. He's saying, Lord, fix me. Now with this request, is David uh, asking for regeneration? Was he asking for regeneration? That his dead spirit be made alive? I don't think that's the case. The kind of repentance that David is exhibiting does not come from the flesh or from a heart of stone. David is already regenerate at this point in time. What he's doing is what those of us who have been born again in the Spirit plead for during times of repentance. That God renew the Spirit that He gave to us in the beginning when He first breathed life into us and inclined us our hearts towards him. David is asking, as we should, for a new visitation of his soul that will bring about a steadfast love for God. Not an inconsistent walk that displays flashes of obedience every now and then, but a loyal love. The same steadfast love that God has for us. The the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. We have heard it mentioned 
from the pulpit uh, several times before in past sermon. It's K-H-E-S-E-D. There's, it's really, I tried to, smarter men than I in the past, I've tried to look for an exact English equivalent. There isn't. And I still couldn't find one. So, chesed is what it is. That loyal love. Now, contained in verse 11 is a repeat of a plea David made earlier in verse 4. Verse 11 reads this. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Can you feel the agony in David's spirit as he's pleading with God here? Cast me not away. If I may paraphrase David, he's saying, God, if you're going to deal with me according to your justice and send me to the outer darkness, I have no right to complain. But please don't. Please don't. You have every right, but please don't. I can lose my family. I can lose my wealth. I can lose my kingdom and live through it. But if I lose you, I lose everything. Now, in the Hebrew mind, the experience of God is equated to His presence. Not His wrathful presence, but His redemptive presence. That's why God made His presence known to them in the wilderness as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That signifies a blessing from God. That's why the Hebrew blessing goes The Lord bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you. The redemptive presence of God to the Hebrew mind is a blessing. To take that away, that's what David is asking for. Please don't take your presence away from me. But when David writes, take not your Holy Spirit from me, what is he saying? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Is David afraid of losing his salvation? Maybe. I don't know. But don't we all feel that way sometimes? I know I do on occasion. Even though my theology tells me that I can't lose my salvation, my sin argues otherwise. When I am in my sin, I would even wonder sometimes if I'm saved. Yes, we all feel this that way sometimes, but I don't think that's what David is writing about here. I think that David's referring to what, what he's referring to in this verse is the very special way that the Holy Spirit participates in the lives of some Old Testament saints. There are many accounts of God the Holy Spirit gifting certain individuals for a particular task. For example, the Holy Spirit would come upon the prophets of old. You can also see this in the book of Judges, where he comes upon Samson. He comes upon Gideon. To equip them for specific tasks. And in the same way, the Spirit of God anointed the kings of Israel. Starting with King Saul. And if you recall, near the end of his reign, the Spirit left Saul. And now David is saying, please don't do to me what you did to Saul. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, God. I can't function without it. I believe that's what David's asking for when he asks that the Holy Spirit not be taken from him. Okay, now, at this point, I would ask for your forgiveness because I, as I mentioned in the beginning, I knew that I could easily take two or three, not hours, but two or three Sundays 
at the pulpit to do justice to the richness of Psalm 51. But because of uh, what I thought would be my limited time, I just take the rest of the psalm and offer you my final point, which is the result of a person's godly repentance and subsequent forgiveness by God. We can see this theme or repeated as a theme in several of the verses until the end of the psalm. Listen to some of the verses, uh, remaining, uh, some, some words from the remaining verses of Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Here's another one. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Here's another one. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Do you see a pattern? Do you see a pattern in these verses? I will teach transgressors your ways. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your presence or your praise. Do you remember those times when you've experienced God's forgiveness? Particularly when he revealed to you that he has justified you and adopted you into his family? Do you remember? you remember having a strong desire to tell others of the sweet message of the gospel? Nothing, nothing fuels evangelism like forgiveness. And this is the overflow of the joy that follows the brokenness experienced by a soul that has been touched by the Spirit, moved to genuine repentance and then forgiven. As the Lord Jesus said himself, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I would like to repeat what I said in the beginning of my message. We all have a problem with guilt. And I'm not talking about false guilt or mere guilt feelings. I'm speaking of an objective, real guilt before God. The only solution to guilt is forgiveness, and repentance is the path to being forgiven. In Psalm 51, we see David brought to repentance by the Spirit of God, and near the end, we see glimpses of the joy that results from being forgiven. Make no mistake, though. Make no mistake. This type of joy that David is experiencing does not come from a removal of the consequences of his sin. It wasn't because he did not have to pay for the conse- uh, consequences of his sin. He, he, it's, they were still around. But rather, his joy came from the knowledge that his, fellow, his fellowship with God has been renewed. That's where your joy should come from too. When you repent, my joy, our joy comes from the renewal of our fellowship with God. Oh yes, there are consequences. God may choose to remove them, but not all the time. We should be like David and say, Lord, if you let the consequences of my sin remain, you're justified in doing that. You're not being unfair. I actually deserve more. We actually deserve more. And if you would like to have greater insight into David's joy, over his being forgiven, I would recommend reading Psalm 32. Read Psalm 32. Now, there's David, 
expressing his joy over his forgiveness. And I would be amiss not to bring up the joy of being forgiven. It's so wonderful if you've experienced it. And I'm sure many of you have. And I hope that as you read Psalm 32, you'll be blessed as you discover more of David's expressions of joy. It's a blessing to read through it. Now, as we usually do at this time in our service, we want to have the opportunity to publicly express and give voice to how the Spirit may have moved you from the reading and the breaking of God's Word. Perhaps you want to express joy over forgiveness that you've experienced. Perhaps you want to express sorrow over a sin you've committed against the Lord. Perhaps you would like for the Spirit to just show the sin in your life that you may repent of it. There's sin we may not even be aware of. Just bear in mind that when you speak, that when we speak, when we pray, we are speaking to God who is righteous and is always right in His judgment. But at the same time, He is abounding in grace. He's abounding in mercy. He's abounding in love for all of us. All we ask is that you please pray loudly so that we, we may join you in prayer. And you may be mindful of that other brethren might want an opportunity to pray as well. So I will open and uh, Keith will close us in a little bit. So let us go before God. Father, thank you for your spirit that brings us to repentance. That we may be right before you. That we may have fellowship before you. Oh Lord, thank you that you have given us a glimpse of what it is to be touched by your spirit. That we may not be misled by our own heart, Lord. So I do pray as David prayed that you would renew a right spirit in us, that you would visit the souls of everyone here, Lord, starting with me, that we would repent before you and that we would experience the truth of your promise that if we come to you in repentance, you are quick and just to forgive.